Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Hello guys, gals and non-binary pals, you're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. My name is Clementine Ford, I am your host, I am also the author of the books Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys and the forthcoming memoir How We Love which is out in October. Now, I'm sorry to say that today we won't be answering advice questions on the podcast, but that's because I'm having a very in-depth discussion with the author of a new book about white feminism. It is, in fact, called White Feminism, and the author is Koa Beck. Koa Beck is the former editor-in-chief of Jezebel, and previously she was the executive editor at Vogue and co-host of the hashtag MeTooMemos on WNYC's The Takeaway. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Observer, The Guardian, and Esquire, among others. And for her reporting prowess, she has been interviewed by the BBC and has also appeared on many panels about gender and identity at the Harvard Kennedy School at Harvard University, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Brooklyn Historical Society, and Columbia Journalism School. She joins me now from Los Angeles. Thank you very much for coming to speak to me today. I'm struck by how meticulous the research in this book is, and I I want to say that it's an absolute delight to read and to be furnished with such rich history and also uncompromising challenge as well. There were moments in this book where I felt deeply uncomfortable, and I think that that's really good. I think that that's exactly what a book should do, and hopefully what this book will achieve is that the people who need to read it and feel that discomfort will lean into it, lean in. <laughs> lean in in, in, in in a different capacity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for having me and extending the invitation. It's really lovely to see so many people, yourself included, thoughtfully engaging with the book, and it does mean a lot to me. Well, it's a blistering examination of how white feminism aligns with capitalism, individual ambition, and ultimately patriarchy in order to secure some version of liberation for the minority while ignoring the masses of women whose labor and subjugation is required to maintain those systems. And I'm aware that in promoting this book and in talking about this book, you'll be expected to continuously go back to the basics of what white feminism is. So I'm not going to ask you to do that because I, <laughs> I want to 
I want to believe that the people who listen to this podcast do have some basic understanding. And I also think that will it will unfold over the course of our conversation. And you're talking about, you know, this is another thing as well that I think is really interesting. And I want to get into this at some point as well, that, you know, no shade on younger feminists, but the ways in which capitalism has co-opted feminism and repackaged it, particularly for younger generations who have grown up on the internet and using social media, has meant that I don't I don't see a lot of acknowledgement of past liberationists and feminists and mm-hmm. reference to their work, which I think is all part of the same problem that you're really exposing and talking about. So, it, you know, in reference to Lean In, you quote Bell Hooks said on The Feminist Wire in 2013, Sheryl Sandberg's definition of feminism begins and ends with the notion that it's all about gender equality within the existing social system. From this perspective, the structures of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy need not be challenged. No matter their standpoint, anyone who advocates feminist politics needs to understand the work does not end with the fight for equality of opportunity within the existing patriarchal structure. We must understand that challenging and dismantling patriarchy is at the core of contemporary feminist struggle. This is essential and necessary if women and men, and she doesn't say this, but everyone, are to be truly liberated from outmoded sexist thinking and actions. And I thought that was a really great place to start. <laughs> um, sure. I mean, I, I I feel like if Bell Hooks is quoted, that's kind of the beginning and end of, you know, really anything that can be said. But just let me know what you would like me to comment on. <laughs> well, I guess just that that idea of how that you know, capitalism in particular has co-opted feminism. And and I was surprised to read when you were looking at the history of feminism and the history of white feminism in particular, I was surprised to realise that even, even in the suffragette movement, visual aspects of the suffragettes were sold to them in department stores, mm-hmm. the pom-poms, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the floral adornments. So this is something that it's not a new problem, even though we we may be told, we're constantly being told, oh, this is a new thing or this has changed from the past. But actually, capitalism has always tried to get its hooks into these things, right? Mm-hmm. And also per, um, I'll address that, but per the point you made earlier about not seeing a lot of recognition of past feminists and thinkers, um, I do go into detail in, in the book, and I think this is really pertinent to say that white feminism is and has always has been extremely ageist. And so there's a reason that in white feminist discourse, you don't often hear from women over the age of like 35 or 40, because in white feminism, older women, frankly, do not exist. Um, They do not have health concerns. They do not experience sexism. um, They do not experience uh, any sort of like systemic oppression or invisibility. So that is my sense as to why that happens um, on, you know, internet landscapes, but also just broadly, I feel like uh, a lot of um, the research that I go into and into the book regarding the commodification of the suffrage movement in the United States, basically white feminism as an ideology and a practice, one of its hallmarks is that it has always sought to partner with consumerism and power and money. And the what historians refer to as the modern suffrage movement in 
the United States. So like around, you know, 1915, 16, 17, um, those women uh, varied in their strategy from what historians refer to as like the radical suffragettes from like the late 1800s, where these younger women, um, they saw the immense power that consumerism had in terms of where people were spending more time now, um, what was consuming people's days, what they were paying attention to. And so they sought to really capitalize on that quite literally and figuratively um, to export this very homogenized image of what a suffragette is. And in my own archival research, um, I went through a lot of, you know, representations of suffrage and it does pan out the, the woman you are supposed to think of in considering, you know, women wanting the right to vote is always this very thin, able-bodied, fair-skinned white woman who is middle-class or aspires to be middle-class, um, is, you know, a devoted wife and mother. Um, and the assessment I make and that, um, uh, Margaret Finnegan, the historian who I cite in my book, uh, both observe, um, is that this accomplished a lot in terms of messaging to broader America that suffrage shared these ideas of what a woman was supposed to be. It didn't complicate them or challenge them in any way. And I feel like, um, you know, ageism is also a really, really big part of that. Mm. I really actually had that down to talk about as well, because oh. one of the, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, there are obviously key differences between Australia and America, you know, one of which is that we have a system of socialized healthcare. So this does have um, an impact, I think, on, on women in a positive way, although that is not to say that it's all positive. But in Australia, the fastest growing group of homeless people are women over the age of 65. And apart from the fact that that is reprehensible, and I want to talk to you in a minute about the labour that women, particularly working class and women of colour and domestic workers have been expected to perform in order to furnish this kind of opulence of feminism. It is that lack of interest that when when we discuss issues of oppression that are dealt with, and beyond whether or not we just listen to older women, but when we discuss issues of oppression that are experienced structurally and materially by older women, there's not a lot of interest because, as you say, it's not sexy. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the sexed upness as well, the very thin, white, able-bodied representation of feminism. It, it rings very familiar, this idea that, you know, it's the appealing to patriarchal ideals as well and, and your chapter in particular about heterosexism that, oh, we're not really a threat to you. We're not really substantially trying to change the entire way that the world works. We just want a little bit more and don't worry, we'll still look good while we're doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And I feel like the the homogenizing of feminism that, that white feminism has always been very successful in, I see a lot in, you know, what some people refer to now as the fourth wave um, in mm -hmm. that you know, there in my lifetime specifically, I've seen some variance in terms of, you know, a, a woman of color, you know, who's like on a panel or like one particular trans woman who has been recruited to like somehow diversify, you know, an entire discussion or conference or whatever. But while the homogeny is maybe being like slightly complicated with like one older woman, one native woman, one Latina, um, the homogeny that's happening is very white collar um, and very uh, like corporate in terms of, and I get into this in the book as well, like 
when you think of, you know, post me to feminism, especially in my country, you're supposed to think of this young woman who is straight and presents in a very conventionally feminine way. But on top of that, she works in an office and like she has a smartphone and she checks a lot of email and she's like really into her job and, you know, works 60 hours a week and like deems that, you know, quote unquote feminism. Um, and I think that's, I, I detect a real through line between that homogeny that's happening and then what the white feminist suffragists were trying to accomplish in terms of like, here is the woman you're supposed to think of, a woman that does everything she's supposed to do and performs gender in the way that she's supposed to. Mm. I actually thought about that a lot when you, you go into a little bit more of your experience working in women's magazines and uh, or magazines that you know, package em- empowerment, quote unquote empowerment, the worst term in the world. Um, and I remember thinking when I was younger and it was less, everything was not really online then, but, you know, glossy magazines were more the physical, you could physically hold a copy. And I remember feeling isolated is too strong a word because that implies some kind of harm was done to me. And it's definitely not that, that's not what I'm saying. But I remember thinking even then how interesting it was that the only kinds of women that seemed to be championed by these magazines were those that worked in an office, uh, not necessarily then in leadership roles, because of course they were aiming for women in their late teens and early twenties, mm-hmm. but that this was the, this was what we were being taught to aspire to was this kind of equality within the system rather than dismantling of the system entirely. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned me too, because I remember reading a couple of years ago when it was sort of at its height, I remember reading about the, you know, the farm workers and the factory workers mm-hmm. who were just completely dismissed and lost in the conversation on Me Too and mm-hmm. and women suffering at work. And realizing as well then that there was no there was no group that was willing to pave the way. I mean, you you end the book by talking about what we can do. And I'm aware that I'm continually using that collective term, we, um, but what people can do to open the doors rather than closing them behind them. But there was no one that seemed interested in doing that for the women who suffered the deepest and the Mm -hmm. most harm. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, um, in in my country especially, that was very uh, profit driven, you know, and, and, and follows like a very capitalistic sort of understanding of Me Too. And I do get in, into this in the book and that at some point, you know, there is a whole swath of industries that were grossly profiting off of Me Too, you know, in terms of like faux activism or branding or like law firms or whatever. Um, but I think that the exact... Um, sort of crosshatch that you're referring to is that the appetite grotesquely to read about Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, being abused, to read about Angelina Jolie being abused is much higher than people wanting to read about hotel maids being abused Mm. or like, you know, any sort of like service workers or like domestic workers being abused. So that's how I think about that time period. And I think that speaks to, again, the ways in which capitalism and money um, drive some of the worst and most sexist and oppressive um, avenues in my country. Mm. 
I was listening to Louis Theroux's podcast with Rose McGowan a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned that uh, during the the Oscars ceremony, when all of the the famous actresses partnered with figures from Times Up and Me Too, that the actress Laura Dern did a paid ad for Bulgari with a watch, Times mm. Up with a watch. And I felt like that was that's one of the clearest and most obscene <laughs> examples I can think of in terms of the, you know the yeah. capitalizing on the Me Too movement. Okay, so I want to get back to the you know, the history of collective action because I said before that I'm aware that I've used the term "we," and you are critical of of how white feminism, in particular, sort of collectivizes this "we." for an experience that actually is shared by only the most privileged amongst people. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I found fascinating to read about was the the strike from the Jewish housewives in the mm-hmm. 19, uh, early 1900s to lower the meat mm-hmm. prices. Can you please talk a little bit about that and about what it tells yeah. us about collective action? So that I'm um, happy that that spoke to you because that's one of my favorite pieces of research and also the book as well. And when I found that and I was reading it, I was so engaged by it. And also a lot of the strategies of those women, I feel like are so contemporary. Um, Essentially what Clementine is referring to in 1902 in New York City, specifically on the Lower East Side, um, a collective of Jewish housewives protested the prices of meat. Basically meat um, went up an exorbitant amount without, you know, any sort of, um, you know, increased protections for like the workers, you know, who were shipping the meat or like, you know, the animals well-being. It was literally just a a meat tax. And um, these housewives were horrified at the price, but also they just frankly couldn't afford it. Um, And so they went and met and decided that, you know, as a community, the women of these households would be protesting this meat. And they, you know, engaged in a lot of like civil discourse that we see now, you know, they stood outside, um, they protested when they saw people going in and out of meat shops, they would like yell at them. Um, They also um, reportedly got violent on a number of occasions, police were called, they were taking meat out of customers hands and throwing it on the ground. Um, But the point that they were trying to make is that, you know, as women who performed all this domestic labor worked in the home, they and their husbands could not afford the price of meat. And the way that they, you know, metabolize this and understand this was it wasn't about one of them necessarily getting to a point where she could afford meat, right? And then that being exported as like a quote unquote feminist win. And the fact that we all need to be like this one woman in our neighborhood who can't afford this price of meat and has like ascended classes. Um, the idea that was shared, you know, really intuitively by all these Jewish women was that this was inhumane and that they had rights as um wives of basically working class people. And and it runs very counter to a lot of feminist narratives now about, you know, aspiring and ascending. Um, But also these women worked together 
Um, and they did effectively lower the price of meat, specifically by not buying it. Um, meat continued to spoil, which was a problem. And so it was reversed. Um, and it should be noted that, the, you know, these these women initially didn't get support from the men in their communities, you know, whether it was like their husbands or their religious leaders. Um, they, they were deemed an embarrassment to their community because of the way that they were behaving. But they stayed with it anyway. Eventually, the men in their community did join. They saw hopefully the the merit and what they were trying to do. Um, and the court system was incredibly condescending to them, told them that they didn't understand the meat market, that they should really just buy it anyway and stop complaining. You know, like a lot of rhetoric that's used now with, with women when they gather and, you know, challenge authority. Um, and even, you know, a number of them were arrested and the stakes were really high. And a, a lot of them had children. Um, but they, again, working collectively, they went door to door raising money for one another's bail. Um, so they they were really a cohesive unit. And I think another thing to keep in mind with this history is that, you know, these weren't like idealistic 20 somethings, you know, who were like fresh out of college or like very activated. I mean, these were women well into their 30s. They had no formal organizing experience, whatever that means. Um, but they were able to pull this off. And in the United States specifically, I track from there a whole thread of consumer activism, specifically by housewives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really incredible thread of women's activism that for you know a lot of reasons, I think having to do with the politics of white feminism, doesn't really get categorized, at least in my country, as quote unquote, women's rights history, which I think is really telling. I- I think that the same is true here. And one of the things that I really loved about that story or about your accounting of it was your observation that, and you've sort of gone into it there as well, but your observation that this was about recognizing without question that the working class had rights to, and not rights to, as you say, ascend, but to be treated with dignity in the spheres in which they operated, that there was nothing wrong with the spheres in which they operated. They just needed to be treated with dignity and have human rights and access to affordable meat to feed their families. Mm-hmm. You kind of contrast that um, nicely is the wrong word, but it's a, it's a good contrast and a depressing one in a later example where you talk about the advocacy shared by some corporate women in a, you know working in a corporate firm who were advocating to get more accessible childcare so that they could work Mm -hmm. on site. And the woman who you were speaking to finds herself ultimately stymied by the more uh, privileged women who sit at the top, who ensured that everyone had longer maternity leave, but they they, they wouldn't get the on-site daycare that was being advocated for. And this was still packaged as a win because it helped... Mm -hmm these women at the top. And it kind of like operates on that furphy of trickle down liberation. That if we just liberate people at the top, somehow everyone will be liberated. Which is a cornerstone of white feminism, right? Yeah, very, very much so. And I feel like um, that example that, you know, that woman very generously shared with me and chose to remain anonymous for like all the reasons you can imagine, you know, somebody who speaks out against white feminism wants to remain anonymous. Um, I think that what she relayed to me in our interview together and then, you know, the politics that she describes navigating, I feel like 
so many women I have known, you know, either professionally or have like, you know, tried to work in some organizational capacity, whether it's like, you know, even like volunteer activism or, you know, in something that's more like policy based, like, you know, the woman in my book did. Um, I feel like that um, passage of the book really speaks to some enduring dynamics in that, you know, as a woman, you experience this specific reality, especially as, you know, a woman who's not wealthy or like doesn't come, you know, from a certain educational background or, you know, is a single mom or, you know, is of color or, or queer or like, you know, all these different circumstances. And yet you bring this to the attention of like the gender conscious body, you know, in your workplace or your neighborhood or your school or whatever. And they tell you that what you are experiencing is not relevant to feminism. <laughs> and and that is a mold that white feminism has uniquely cast um, that has continued from what some people quantify as the first wave through now, where the, the ways in which you experience the world as a marginalized gender are not a part of quote unquote feminism. Mm. One of the most consistent critiques throughout the book is the ways in which white feminists in particular replicate the practices of men in patriarchy um you know you 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 refer to going to an all women's college and and the fight at the time you were there to be inclusive to trans students and not trans mm -hmm. men but trans women mm -hmm. because you know trans men were i mean there's it's a whole mess of transphobia but yes <laughs> you kind of observe that you want to say to some of your fellow students at the time do you realize we're being the men in this situation and this is mm -hmm. so often how white feminism plays out in terms of that argument of being divisive, that mm -hmm. this is the language that men use against women as an as a entire force, but particularly, I suppose, against, it's particularly felt as egregious against white feminists because our concerns are so much smaller and so, you know, and we prioritise them, of course, because that's what whiteness has taught us to do. <laughs> well, I think that for um, a large part of my life and my personal experiences with, you know, the mainstream feminism that has been perpetuated in my country, there has always, there, there continues to be this big push for like more women in power, more women in leadership, more women at the top, more women in STEM, more women in, you know, these male dominated fields. But the part that I feel is very much missing and has been missing is like but what happens when you get there mm -hmm. like if you are this very powerful woman and you have been you know championed on this raft of of white feminism that tells you that like this is the path when you get to that ceo role or you know you're in the c-suite or you're you know running this huge lofty department how are you going to enact feminism, whatever that means, when you get there? And I feel like white feminism has never concerned itself <laughs> with the other part of that. It's just very opaquely like get in there and be powerful. And then, you know, that will you being in that very powerful role will then like fix oppressive systems, which I feel mm -hmm. like is a script that white feminists are told, you know, so much so that like when I'm in spaces, you know, where I'm talking about the subject matter, you know, even in posing that question one-to-one -one, or even like structurally, you know, with some like, you know, organizations or companies that I've interviewed over the course of my career, it's not a coincidence that they don't have an answer to that because 
white feminism has never propagated an answer to that. They've never supported an answer to that. Um, and so I think about, you know, imbuing and in some ways indoctrinating, you know, women and non-binary people into this like mantra of power and then not really furnishing them with the complex understanding of like what to do in the event that you even want to get there. Are you just going to assume this very powerful role and then manage everybody, you know, like the really exploitative male CEO would, you know, and then call it feminism because you happen to identify as a woman and, you know, like wear heels. I mean, it, it's a very um, like nonsensical narrative, but it has been extremely enduring. Hmm. And white feminism sells itself to the populace and to, you know, corporatized feminism with this insistence that you do support it because if you don't, you're somehow anti-women and you're anti-women's success, uh, you know, to yeah. the point where very conservative women who would never normally align themselves with feminism, not even white feminism, will use that argument against any critique of them that comes from other women that you know, well, what happened to the sisterhood? So there's this whole, like, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the kind of economic structure of the sisterhood is actually just a wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, yeah, and I find um, in my country specifically, there has been this very unhelpful narrative um, in um, it's 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 media fueled for for sure, but I I can't really pinpoint one outlet. It's I mean it's mainstream, but it's also like you know traditional women's media as well. Um, that's like this tonality, especially when you know Trump was elected. That was the the tonality of a lot of the coverage, especially when we started to get like voting data back, you know, across gender. It was always very obtusely like, how can women vote this way? Mm. <laughs> and I mean, especially for myself and a number of my colleagues, you know, who cover these sorts of things. Traditionally in the United States, white women have always voted this way. I mean, this isn't new, um, but I think also what you're hearing echo back from a lot of these media narratives is, is this sort of assumption that like women are, you know, monolithic for one, but also they're affording um, and, and in some ways being very generous with this idea that like white women or women broadly, however you're thinking about that, um, must be aligned, you know, in terms of recognizing oppressive structures. And that is fundamentally untrue, um, especially when you, you know, look at things in my country, like queer rights or mm -hmm. like police reform or healthcare, um, or, you know, anything to do with immigration or like birth control or, you know, like white women do not vote in favor of those things and they never have. Mm. The, it's interesting that you mentioned police reform because, one of the things that I notice white women in particular doing is, and again, it comes back to that notion of the, perhaps the only collective that white feminists understand is using the collective we to refer to everybody's experiences when actually it yeah. just refers to a small, small minority of experience. But that a lot of white feminists are able to view the police as a liberating force because for, for, for them, for us, the police have always been, when I say us, I'm including, I'm, I'm acknowledging, of course, that I'm white, so I'm, I'm not trying to disting, distinguish myself from that privilege. And I've just thought now that you had that great part in the book about how white feminists in particular drop privilege as sort of like a, a <laughs> band-aid. That's not what I was doing. Um, 
but that white feminists and white women have always been able to view the police as a a force that will protect us whereas Mm -hmm. you know there's not a lot of acknowledgement from white feminists in Australia and I'm sure it's similar in America that we have a crisis of mass incarceration in this country the fastest Mm -hmm growing group of incarcerated people are Aboriginal women and quite frequently Mm -hmm. Aboriginal women are imprisoned here. Uh, You you know, they may have reported domestic abuse and Mm -hmm. and a a quote-unquote solution is to remove them from that situation by incarcerating them in watch houses and, um, you know, or, or Aboriginal women. We've had horrific circumstances here where Aboriginal women have died in custody after being, there was a woman, Tanya Day, who prompted a a change in Victorian legislation where I live, where prior to that, public drunkenness was considered a crime. And Tanya Day was on a train travelling home from Castlemaine to Melbourne and she fell asleep. Someone called the police and she was taken to the police station, arrested. She sustained head injuries and she died in custody. And there was a, you know, a lot of collective push from Aboriginal activists in particular to change this law. And after a sustained period of time and, and activism, that law was changed, but it wasn't done by, it wasn't done by feminism. It was done by right. that model of collective action and collective activism but the thing is I know that as a white woman I can be drunk on a train and I have been drunk on a train and the response would not be that but Mm -hmm. there is still this refusal I suppose to see the oppressive nature of that system and that white women and white feminists can respond to you know stories of sexual assault and Right by by just saying immediately we'll report it, as if somehow mm-hmm. this is this is a liberation for all people. Yeah, I think that um, per your point, white feminism in particular and its politics surrounding incarceration and police are very interesting. And I think that's a diplomatic way of me saying like they don't really have politics on that at all. Like it just doesn't even exist, you know, which I think is very telling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, terrain where I saw this play out a lot, and I do go into this in the book, um, is, you know, when Me Too was was um, resurfacing in, in the United States. And I mean, even so, like, I, I remember being in newsrooms and, you know, covering a lot of these allegations, you know, with the team. And like, it's a very... Um, uh, weird like threshold that I think you know white feminism tries to or tried to in some ways straddle with me too where it was like this these predatory forces are always male um, and you know statistically in terms of the data that's available in my country that is true you know if we're talking about like reported things and especially like sexual predatory behavior but a a really obtuse dimension that I saw fall out of white feminism during Me Too was this idea that like if you work in a you know women-centric space or you work for women you can't be abused Mm -hmm. uh at, at work or somehow like you you won't be and I know that for 
a lot of women in my own life, women I've worked with, I mean, some of the intense racial harassment that they've adored, endured has absolutely come from women, um, particularly in like women's spaces, um, in spaces that are, you know, either branded feminist or, or deemed feminist. And I, I include a lot of examples in, in the book of, you know, spaces that really take on that kind of feminist branding. Um, and we're very, you know, pro me too in a cosmetic way. <laughs> um, but then, you know, it came out that like they were abusing their own you know, workers. And there were a number of women of color who were not being paid well or who had been like harassed at work um, by by other women. And I think another facet of that that um, should be mentioned is that, you know, throughout time, white feminism, the the, the reason I think this happens is because white feminism has always tried to preserve institution and power um, because it has always tried to partner with it um, and not to reinvent it or to reinterrogate it or, you know, redistribute that power. Um, white feminism partners with power and institution. And with Me Too, I think that brought that to light in, in almost like a really crass way where it's like, you know, they ha in in some instances, white feminism has ascended because of the really abusive policies and practices that Me Too was challenging. You know, in terms of low pay, in terms of sexualizing some people who did not give their consent to be, in terms of exploitative wages, um, in terms of you know having like this whole infrastructure around them that sustains their success and prominence. But you know, in white feminist discourse, that is not analyzed because power is unfortunately not analyzed. This became really clear as well after COVID kind of changed the world and the, you know, emergence of stories of wealthy families and wealthy white women in particular who were insisting that their domestic workers put themselves at risk and not isolate. And this expectation that in order to sustain the comfort levels of white women, that domestic workers and mostly they're going to be women of colour and the poor working class, that they will just by proximity be happy to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, um, you know, in terms of what COVID has brought to light, I mean, that's not, uh, that is consistent with white feminism, especially when, um, I'm sure it's similar in, in your country as well, you know, the, the more pedestrian channels by which, you know, white collar work is achieved, all of those things have been disrupted with, with COVID. Um, and I go into this in the book as well about, you know, the, the, the minute that you could not leave your house allegedly and other people could not allegedly come in, um, you know, you started seeing all these trend pieces in the United States about, you know, these white collar, like, uh, women who, you know, had pretty successful careers, jobs, practices, that sort of thing. And they were giving these quotes to the New York Times that were like, I have five jobs. This is nuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because white feminism as an ideology has never challenged that system by which you now do have five jobs, um, because the way to compartmentalize and, and, you know, the word that I've heard a lot in my career is outsource, um, outsourcing labor, you know, whether it's like cooking, cleaning, taking care of children, laundry, you know, taking care of, you know, mother-in-laws or, you know, elders or whatever, um, that 
all of that care and all of that labor and all that work has not been factored in to any sort of economic critique. And I think that, you know, when I'm reading and encountering these pieces where white collar women um, are considered, you know, women who are considered successful in the broad sense of the word, um, you know, talking about how they're losing like all these, you know, career accolades or, you know, they were on path to achieve something and now they're not going to have that anymore. And they've had to, you know, leave their job in some instances to take care of children's like remote learning or what have you. Um, What I'm often hearing them, you know, say between the lines, what I'm interpreting is that like, they're expecting white feminism to save them Mm. and to step in. And white feminism has never been that movement. White feminism was never designed to reinterpret care models or to think about um, the ways in which domestic work has not been equated, you know, with uh, labor that produces money. Um, And so I I actually, in my country, I wrote an op-ed on this um, for Time Magazine about how I'm I'm bristling considerably when I'm hearing the shorthand tossed out that like COVID is setting back feminism. And I don't think that's true at all. I think um, COVID is revealing the ideological weaknesses in white feminism. Mm. Um, but, you know, there are so many women in my country and it sounds like yours as well that, you know, have uh, all types of movements and 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 rights that they need that they have been mobilizing on for a very long time um, that are just not a part of that specific approach to gender equality. It kind of reminded me a little bit about uh, in Ajoma Alue's book *Medioka: The Dangerous Legacy of White Male Power*. She talks I about. I want to read that. I haven't it? read it yet. I want to. <laughs> it's really good. It's actually. I will say it's a it's a fabulous companion text for your book. Oh, cool! <laughs> so it's, it's really good. She talks about Bernie Sanders, not in not in any exoriating way, really. Although she is definitely critical, she says he's the best of a bad bunch, essentially. But she does talk about his constant deflection away from issues that may have been raised to him in forums and community talking spaces and constantly back to this idea of, well, we need to liberate the white working class. Again, this sort of assumption that these these very central integral issues to liberation are actually niche topics and that somehow they're not part of the core tenets of a liberation movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, when when I reflect on Biden, I mean, especially considering the circumstances of my country and a Trump win, I mean, I think of Biden in a lot of sense as like the best of a bad bunch. I mean, politically, he's a centrist. Um, he has been able to push forward a lot in terms of executive orders, which we so seldom need. But, you know, he was not my first choice <laughs> um, for a lot of the reasons that you cite. Um, and I, I don't know if she's necessarily as big a deal in your country as she is in mine, but AOC um, has been very vocal. She's a big about, deal. <laughs> and she's a big deal everywhere. Um, <laughs> she has been very vocal about, you know, challenging, you know, some of his policies on things. And even, you know, we're so early in his presidency, but even, you know, statements he's made already. And, you know, she did not attend the inauguration because she went to a um, support a Teamsters union, which I think is, you know, really reveals a lot about her Mm -hmm. politics and, you know, what she's pushing for. Um, 
But I think that um, I was on a different panel recently and uh, Dr. Benita Roth, who is a writer and academic um, in the US, she teaches in New York, I cite her book, um, she's very brilliant. She made an observation in passing that I feel like has really stayed with me where she said that um, the United States only elects centrists. Um, and myself and Barbara Smith, one of the other women on the panel, like really sat with that. And I have to admit, I didn't really have a response to that. I, I started to be more reflective, you know, about history and even, you know, the research I did for this book. And I thought like, yeah, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so much of, you know, the conversations that I've been following and even, you know, on uh, panels that I've been sitting on recently and on book tour, there's a lot of discussion in the United States right now on, um, you know, pushing Biden and Kamala more left on some of their stuff, um, particularly like defund the police and a number of those initiatives. This to me is one of the central tenets of white feminism, that when people say things like, well, isn't feminism about choice? And I just want to scream and say, no, feminism yeah. <laughs> can't just be about choice because not everyone has choice and not everyone has the same kind of choices. And in order for you to make those choices that, that you find liberating in a capitalist model, other women need to be exploited to great depth below you. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I feel like feminism, and again, there, there. I make the point in my book, I, I don't believe there is one singular feminism. There have been many feminisms, there have been many gendered movements, but broadly speaking, um, I think feminism is about choice for the people who have choices. Mm. <laughs> I think for most people, um, you know, feminism is about the choice you cannot make um, because of economic circumstances or, you know, because of where you live or because of your gender presentation or, you know, because um, you're fat presenting or, you know, all kinds of, you know, different realities. Um, but I think that, uh, a key piece of what you're talking about that I really did want to illuminate with this book is that, you know, the quote unquote empowerment that gets put on a tote bag or, you know, is said to you in a conference when you've purchased like a very expensive ticket, um, you know, those realities and those scenarios by which you can be, you know, hashtag whatever you want to put there, um, you know, that feminist reality is built on the backs of many other women who are not, you know, a part of this sort of, um, I believe the shorthand that I've been hearing and using on book tour is like feminist utopia, mm -hmm. you know, where like everybody just like has a leadership position and like meets for, you know, lunch with fancy salads and their children are just being tended to in another room. <laughs> and, um, you know, they get birth control for free and they're economically okay. Yeah. Um, and that reality by which you can, you know, pursue that leadership job and, and, and you know, still pursue being a parent if that's what you want to do you will at some point rely on the system of, of care work and domestic workers to pull that off. Um, but I, I, I think a good um, uh, like example of this is like in my own country, um, when I was starting to write this book and was you know talking to people in my life about it, when I said the term white feminism to someone I used to work with, they were like, oh yeah, um, like I, I am that person. And I was like, excuse me, like 
I, I didn't even say what the definition of white feminism is. And she was like, no, no, no. Like I'm that person who left my kids with a black nanny while I, as a white woman, went to women's march. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think that's like the most concise um metaphor of this and that like in order to feel empowered and break the proverbial glass ceiling and in this woman's case like actively protest you relied on a low-income woman of color to take care of your children and that is white feminism i'm actually surprised that with the willingness she had to admit that <laughs> because yeah, to right? me, <laughs> another aspect of white feminism is that it definitely doesn't want to acknowledge its existence which is a good way of bringing in the uh you talk in the book about the history of feminists who happened to be white in the south in uh you know during Jim Crow era but who actually used their position to structurally and significantly protest the segregation that they saw around them uh, to 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 a deal of detriment to themselves, certainly not the same level of detriment, obviously, as people of colour and black people at the time, but who found that by disrupting the demands of white politeness, they were given a lesson in, in how tenuous that protection is. And you mm-hmm. you reference someone who talks about the the sinister nature of white decency and I thought that that was a really important part of the book, particularly for people who are not used to understanding that whiteness is a weapon. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, something that white women and then, you know, white feminists, which I don't think are interchangeable, um, have it like fundamentally in common is that, you know, they are through all the avenues of society and culture Um, you know, and racism and capitalism and heterosexism and all these things, um, they are in direct and indirect ways asked to perform gender a certain way. And I think that for white women, you know, who um, are cis, are straight or, you know, conventionally feminine and straight passing, um, a lot of that comes down to the politeness that, that you just referenced and the way of like looking away, you know, when you see a homeless person on the street or the way of, you know, not engaging in, you know, um, a police officer who is like harassing a person of color on the subway in front of you or, you know, nearby where you happen to be or outside your house, like the ways in which white women, I think, have been conditioned to look away and not, you know, engage, that is, that is gender performance. Like that is how you have been conditioned to be in, in terms of like, you have been messaged repeatedly that that is not your domain and that like, that's not for you. And that, you know, you do not participate in whatever those things are. And I feel like the um, one reason I, I, and I had many for including the history of the anti-racist white women in the South is that those women would not look away. But more importantly, they were so intuitive in seeing the structures of racism and how that played out, particularly as white women. Um, Mm -hmm. And as, you know, as they presented and, and walked in the world and started to understand different facets of society, them performing gender a certain way as white women was part of that structure. I mean, I feel like um, a good contemporary example of this is, um, I don't know if you 
got necessarily coverage of this in Australia, but um, when over the summer of 2020, when we had the wall of moms in the Pacific mm. Northwest, um, these um, self-identified white suburban mothers, um, and in some cases, I'm pretty sure grandmothers, um, marched basically against police brutality um, mm. in Oregon, I believe. I think it was in they, Portland. They formed and, the front wall, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And um, there have since been, at least according to you know my Twitter sleuthing, um, there have been chapters of Wall of Moms that have popped up mm -hmm. all over. And you know, to my assessment, especially having done the research of this book, I mean, that is new. Like white women specifically getting together as a group on a national level and challenging specifically institutionalized police brutality, that is new. Mm. Um, but that is in some ways a version of what these individual white women I cited, you know, like Ann Braden, Julia Morgan, um, that's what, you know, they were advocating in terms of, you know, seeing these really racist interactions play out in front of them and then, you know, inserting themselves in those scenarios. And in some cases, you know, weaponizing their own white womanhood, mm. you know, to get either attention or eyes or to like disrupt the scripts by which those things play out. Mm. We have something, it's not quite the same, but we have a group here in Australia called Grandmothers for Refugees. And for years mm -hmm. they've been fighting for the rights of refugees because we've obviously had mm -hmm. offshore prisons that have um, mm -hmm. illegally kept asylum seekers for years at a time. Mm -hmm. And I think that recognising that, you know, this construct of white womanhood as victimhood or potential victimhood mm -hmm. and using that, as you say, to create a very powerful barrier is a way that we can subvert, or white, when I say we, I mean white women can subvert our power in the system. Um, but it contrasts again uh, uncomfortably with the story you have at the end when you, you're looking at the, the first women's march in, or the, the women's march in Washington just after Trump was elected. And you talk about the, you know, the myriad different kinds of women that turned up to that. And, of course, that brilliant photograph of the black activist standing there surrounded by white women in their knitted pink pussy hats saying white women, remember white women voted for Trump. But you reference this one woman, again, because there were these ridiculous accusations of it being divisive and white women suddenly expressing, oh, I do, I'm starting to feel like I'm not welcome because all of a sudden white women may have had to share platforms and share share space and, and sit down and be quiet and listen. Um, and she wrote, we all have our own fears and our own reasons for marching. I don't have to understand everyone's reasons to know right from wrong and to be kind to people. And this, again, is one of the the most dangerous aspects of white feminism, isn't it? That this idea that somehow, well, what I want for me is feminism and all that is required of me in terms of activism is to me is for me to be nice and kind, but actually just in that sinister white decency, <laughs> the sinister decency of whiteness kind of way. Mm -hmm. I think that a really um, telling piece of you know, white womanhood broadly in my own country, especially as you track like 
you know, institutionalized racism is this um, inflated value around being nice. Mm. Um, It is very unique to, you know, white and white passing women that, you know, being nice is somehow on par with like racial literacy (laughs) or like class literacy or queer literacy or, you know, any of these um, uh, structures that determine the way that we live and the way that we understand and see each other. Um, I make the point in the book that it's like, you know, niceness as being possessed by really anyone who's not like, you know, a white cis woman does not have a value like that. That is unique. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that it's uh, a very specific piece that white feminism has inherited directly from white supremacy, that niceness is somehow enough. And that it if you offer that to people, you don't necessarily have to understand their realities or the structures by which they are oppressed. Mm. And that's been obviously very clearly on display in the number of white women that are exposed. You see this particularly coming out of America just in terms of people capturing it on video, but, you know, the Karens on camera um, Mm -hmm. reporting, calling and reporting to to the police on black people's everyday ordinary behavior, just trying to live in the world and weaponizing that whiteness in order to place black people in situations in which their very lives are under threat, like Chris Cooper, the the bird watcher in Central Park. Mm-hmm. But this is a, I think that this is a thing, I've reflected on this a lot and I think that this is something that a lot of white women are not, willing to really go deep on because they do want to think of themselves as nice, kind people, whatever that is, that's meaningless really. But I think that a lot of white women need to reflect on what has been, you know, Peggy McIntosh talks about the invisible knapsack, what we have in our invisible knapsacks that, you know, will subvert whatever ideas we have of being kind and being nice, again, those meaningless terms, that when it comes down to it, how will we assert our whiteness in a situation to to assert our power? And that's not just in situations of, you know, dealing with individuals, but that's dealing in structures in the workplaces that we're in, in the, in our homes, you know, how we might exploit domestic workers, how we might participate in the exploitation of women workers in the global south in order to assert our expression of identity or our our choice feminism or or whatever it might be and I'm using those terms we and our very deliberately for my listeners because I know that the majority of them will be white that we may have resisted speaking again to the listeners we as white women may have resisted some form of collective liberation for whatever reason, but that we cannot allow the only collective that we be part of being an assumption that our liberation is the only one that matters or that counts. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of just talking now because I was, again, I've got all those thoughts swirling in my head after reading your book. I guess we're... okay, have them. (laughs) Well, we're almost out of time. Okay. <laughs> what I would love to finish on is you have this beautiful closing few chapters where you say this is this is how we can move forward. This is how we can be different 
And when you say we, you mean we, all of us, this is how we can, this is how you can come and join us in our struggle mm-hmm. rather than expecting that we join you in yours or, or continue to support your liberation. After finishing this book and after spending so much time, obviously deep in the research mode of it, how do you feel about the prospects of change and um, where, where the collective can move forward together? I am feeling cautiously optimistic. Um, I feel like uh, while while researching the book, you know, I came across all kinds of, you know, data points and like changes in my own country that, you know, for a lot of reasons didn't quite make it in the book, but nevertheless, like stay with me as changes that have happened. And one thing um, I think in some ways this intersects a lot with COVID where, like so many, for instance, like white collar workers, you know, aren't in the office anymore and aren't in the literal building. And so they've been working from home and in the United States, especially, and especially for white feminism, you know, the, these jobs and these avenues for corporate success, somehow building these feminist narratives that has been compromised and in some ways completely decimated, you know, for reasons that we talked about earlier in this episode. Um, So I think that in some ways, you know, people who subscribe to a white feminist ideology um, or who were, you know, proponents of white feminism, I feel like in my country, COVID has given them a, a very unique opportunity to revisit those politics and to reconsider the types of, you know, institutions that they expect to go back into at some point, you know, if at all, and also, you know, what they will expect from the government. I mean, the U.S., um, I'm going to be very interested to see the COVID data that we have in, you know, five years, 10 years from now, because it's so new. But I mean, we have really encountered a huge governmental failure. Mm. And I'm very interested in how in my own country, we will tell that story going forward in terms of, you know, a president who neglected us, um, a healthcare system that didn't work. Um, essential workers that were mostly, you know, women of color, Um, as you said earlier, you know, like white collar families that, you know, still demanded that their domestic workers show up and expose themselves Mm -hmm. and compromise themselves and their own families and things like that. So I'm, I'm hoping that through all these facets, um, a, a large swath of this country and especially white feminists rethink institutions and what institutions have you know, in a lot of ways demanded from them, but also what collectively women need from these institutions and what non-binary people need and, and what, um, you know, care workers ultimately need in terms of recognition from this country. A lot to do with daily life has been fundamentally disrupted. And I think that presents a unique opportunity for my country. I just hope, you know, we don't like blow past it because that is my fear that, nothing will change. The people who have jobs like that will just go back to work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Collective memory on a national level can be quite short. So that is my hope and my fear. (laughs) Relatable. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Koa, it's been really illuminating and thrilling 
speaking to you. I loved this book. Like I said at the start, I was deeply challenged by lots of parts of it. And I feel like that's an enormous privilege to be able to read something that challenges the way that you think about things and challenges or exposes in ways that you didn't necessarily realize your complicity in systems that you fundamentally would like to change. So I really appreciate that. And I want to thank you deeply for what you've given to the world. You're speaking at the All About Women Festival in a couple of weeks. Uh, yes, I am, uh, which I'm I'm really excited about because um, I, I've, I've never been to Australia. I would like to go one day, but it seems like this is as close as I'm going to get <laughs> for, for a while. <laughs> it's a real shame that you couldn't come for this. You know, it's a shame again that COVID has completely changed the world because it is a great festival. Once again, thank you so much for joining me and for giving me the time. I wish you the best of luck on your tour. White Feminism is available at All Good independent bookstores now. Please read it. Please be challenged by it. Please be affirmed by it if you are familiar with so many of the issues that Koa is writing about. And reconsider your approach to collective liberation. Thank you, Koa. Thank you so much for having me, Clementine. It really means a lot to me, again, how thoughtfully you've engaged with this book, truly. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. Normal protocol will resume next week. We will be back with the advice questions. And if you have a question, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. If you'd like to support the ongoing making of this podcast, you can find me on Patreon under the username Clementine Ford. My guest this week has been Koa Beck, former editor-in-chief of Jezebel and author of the essential new feminist text, White Feminism. It is out now in Australia. I really strongly urge you to get it and read it. And also remember that Koa will be appearing at the All About Women Festival. You can find the link to that on the liner notes of this podcast and you can get your ticket, which will be available virtually. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.